Just a brief disclaimer, there's some heavier than usual violence this week and some very slight adult themes. So just check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the next chapter in the Oedipus Saga, where we'll see ancient Greek hero arts and crafts time go just about as well as you would think, and how you should, under no circumstances, choose your personal slogan without focus grouping at first. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's the Moldy Wanjunk, who will definitely make you wish you'd listen to your elders. This is Myths and Legends, episode 147A, Team Spirit. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Okay, so if you haven't heard the episode on Oedipus or aren't really familiar with the story, check out episode 65, Mother Boy, before you listen to this one because having that background might be helpful. Also, spoilers are incoming. Even as a child, Oedipus was important. A prophecy had revealed that the boy would eventually kill his father and marry, that's right, his own mother. Well, it turned out that simply hearing this prophecy caused it to pass. And so Oedipus, hightailing it far from his adoptive home, made his way to his biological parents, where he killed his birth father in a fit of road rage, answered the riddle of the Sphinx, thus freeing Thebes, and married the now single queen, his birth mother. Together, the mother-son duo had four children, and it wasn't until the gods finally had enough of everything and decided to blight the city that the truth came out. It was pretty much pure tragedy from that point on. Jocasta, the queen, hung herself, and Oedipus gouged out his own eyes in what was surely the feel-good play of the summer. had had enough of living in exile. She had gone away with her father slash half-brother, Oedipus, as he cursed her brothers, the twins Polynices and Eteocles, to divide up their inheritance with the sword. And Oedipus was driven from Thebes. Antigone had been with him in Athens, as he talked with King Theseus and blessed the city, and she hadn't been with him when he died. At his own request, Theseus had led Oedipus away. In his final hour, the gods themselves had smiled on the man they had cursed for so many years, and they accepted him. The earth opened and consumed Oedipus, and he would be a blessing to the city of Athens. As long as his body remained there, Athens would be victorious against the city of Thebes. But Antigone? Well, Antigone tightened the pack on her back and turned to Theseus. She needed a horse, because she was going home. Over a year earlier, Polynices and Eteocles, the two sons of Oedipus, stood stunned. They looked at each other. Rough day. They had just found out that their dad had accidentally married his own mother. Their mother. Actually, the whole family had found out all at once. And everyone had displayed their own fun reactions. Jocasta, the queen, hung herself. Oedipus gouged out his own eyes. Antigone, their sister, had defended their father insisting that he was only a pawn of fate. No one willingly killed their father and married their mother. Polynices and Eteocles stood there as the now blind Oedipus processed all these new developments. Loudly and publicly, 
he was disgusted by the thought of his sons now and proclaimed that they were his heirs, true, but they would divide his kingdom, their inheritance, with the sword. He spat at their feet, and Antigone took his hand, I guess shrugging and not knowing why he was cool with her and not them. He's upset, Antigone said after the crowd had cleared out. Yeah, you think? Polynices sneered. Then he sighed. He turned to his brother. Look, he didn't know about Ateocles, but he didn't want to fight over the inheritance. Oh my gosh, yeah, you're my brother. Seriously, all this started when dad killed mom's ex. I'm just spitballing here, but maybe more family murder isn't the answer. That's when Ateocles had an idea. They'd share ruling power. Not in a way that would absolutely end in disaster, where two kings tried to rule at once, but in the way that was only moderately likely to end in disaster, where they took turns ruling, one year on, one year off. And the brother who outlived the other would get to keep the throne. Polynices thought about it for a moment. Honestly, that sounded great. They could defy their father's curse, have a nice vacation every other year, remain brothers, and, more importantly, not murder each other in a blood feud for the throne. Eteocles nodded vigorously. Awesome! As a show of good faith, he even let Polynices go first. Polynices thought about it. Really? No thanks. Eteocles should go first. He... He was just white. You sure? I mean, I'm fine going first, but it's whatever works for you, Eteocles insisted, gesturing wildly with his hands. Polynices nodded. Yeah. Learning that he was the offspring of a mother-son coupling, it... It was a lot to take in. He could use a gap year. Really, he was just happy they found some way to resolve this whole thing without your standard level of bloodshed and violent family feuding for a Greek tragedy. So, one year later, after Polynices returned to Thebes with a tan and a pretty solid Instagram following, he approached Ateocles, said hello, and made a point to highlight his schedule flexibility. Anytime that Ateocles wanted to make the announcement work for him. Ateocles shook his head. He, he didn't understand what what announcement? The whole king thing? You know how we're sharing the throne and all that? His brother reminded him. Ateocles nestled back in the throne and smacked his forehead dramatically with the palm of his hand. Oh yeah, of course, I mean, Polynices did know that he was lying, right? They weren't sharing power. Polynices gripped his forehead, his palm sweaty. The room felt like it was spinning as his mind raced. There wasn't a single thing he could do. I mean, he couldn't, what, call the guards to fight against the current king, the guy who was paying them? Over what? An agreement made with no witnesses? Oh, I should have gotten it in writing, Polynices stammered. You should have gotten it in writing. That's right, brother, the king said as he stood. Polynices had assumed he didn't need to. They were family. Hmm, first mistake. This is a Greek tragedy. Family betrays family all the time, Ateocles remarked. But then he thought about it. You know what? He would honor their agreement. It went what? They, they would share the throne until one of them died? Yeah, sounded about right. He whistled, awakening a flood of running sandals from far off in the palace. Smirking, Ateocles gestured to the door. He was even being generous today his brother could have a head start.
king in exile is still a king. And after Polynices fled Thebes, hiding in the forest for hours while his brother's men searched and eventually gave up, he realized that he had one coin left to trade, his blood. He made his way to the city of Argos and presented himself to their king. Now, Argos was the hometown of both Perseus, the guy who killed Medusa, and Bellerophon, the guy who killed the Chimera. It was a powerhouse city that we've kind of barely talked about on this podcast, and the king there recognized an opportunity to consolidate his power when he saw one. Immediately, he offered Polynices, the loudly proclaimed rightful king of Thebes, his daughter in marriage, and went to work helping his new son-in-law get his ancestral home back from his usurper brother. King Adrastus of Argos sat back with a smile. He'd send out word to all the heroes of the world so that he would have the muscle. Now, he only needed the council, and he knew just the man he needed to ask. In his cave, Tiresias face-palmed the moment the messenger from Argos darkened his door. He held up his hand to stop the man from talking. This family, he muttered to himself. I know why you're here, he said to the young man. I'll be there. The young messenger asked how Tiresias could possibly know why he was here. But already, Tiresias was gesturing to his own face with a groan. Prophet, go, I'll be down. The messenger looked at Tiresias's clearly blindfolded face, didn't the old man need help? Tiresias sat straight up and faced his direction. Pra-fit. Now get lost, or Tiresias was going to tell him which one of his family members was going to murder him. <laughs> the messenger chuckled, stopping suddenly at the realization that the prophet wasn't laughing. Oh. So we've talked about Tiresias a bit from the first Oedipus episode, but he was the prophet that was apparently tasked with telling Oedipus's family when they're making a bad decision so he keeps pretty busy. There are a couple of stories of how he came to receive the cruelly ironic blind prophet package from the gods, which ranged from him seeing Athena bathing in the forest and her feeling bad for him after she blinded him, so she gave him the ability to understand the speech of birds, to a wager between Zeus and Hera. The wager story went like this. Tiresias was making his way through the woods one day, when he came across some snakes, uh, making some baby snakes. Ill-advised under pretty much any circumstances, he smacked the snakes with his walking stick to break it up. Why anyone would do this is beyond me, but he did it. And, as the logical conclusion to interrupting snake coitus, he was immediately transformed into a woman. And she proceeded to live a pretty full life. She became a priestess of Hera, married, had children, and had pretty much accepted this kind of big change until she went walking through the woods again in her middle age years. And again, she saw some snakes together. A couple of decades in a sex change really didn't alter the desire to put a stop to all that, and so she stomped on them this time. Once again, the logical result of interrupting a snake coupling, being an immediate sex change, Tiresias became a man once again, and it was then that he felt a tap on his shoulder. Turning in surprise, Tiresias found Zeus and Hera standing there in a clearing. Apparently, they had a question that only he could answer. The question was that, when men and women were together and things were kind of 100% for both, who had a better time? Zeus insisted it was better for women, or at least all the women he had been with, who had only been his wife, he said, his smile fading as he remembered she was standing right next to him. Hera, looking flatly at her partner, 
insisted it was better for men, at least in her experience. Tiresias grimaced. Ugh, there was no good way out of this. But at least the truth was on the side that wouldn't thunderbolt him to death. He said that if the fun was divided up into 10 parts, men had one and women had nine. Zeus pumped his fist with a Napoleon dynamite. Yes! Hera rolled her eyes and took Tiresias's. As they turned into dust in her hand, she said that he was now blind in every way. Congrats. With that, Hera disappeared. Zeus, however, lingered, stroking his beard in thought. He felt bad about how this went down. He couldn't give Tiresias his eyes back. Hera would absolutely find out about that. She never forgot anything. But he could give the man something else. He eyeballed Tiresias' height and then broke a stick over his leg, handing it to the man. He touched Tiresias' temple, and the man gasped as the knowledge of the world, of thousands of lives, flooded in. Zeus announced that the staff would take him wherever he needed to go, and it would guide him as though he had eyes. The gift of prophecy was sort of a consolation prize. Thanks for helping him win the bet. It was that same staff that Tiresias now used to hobble to the city of Argos, summoned by the king. Tiresias smirked at the assembled C-list heroes as they stood around painting their shields. King Adrastus had built it as yet another Greek mythology event, like the hunt for the Caledonian boar, the time Theseus went after the Amazons, or the voyage of the Argonauts, hoping for the same turnout. But the only ones to respond to his ancient world Craigslist ad, offering immortal glory in return for their lives, were six guys. Maybe the biggest name of the group was Parthenopeus, the son of Atalanta and Meleager, before the pair turned into lions. All six were now hanging out, painting different things on their shields, and all waiting for a turn with the glitter markers. Polynices sat back and grimaced. This was it? This was all they had? King Adrastus threw up his hands. You know, timeline-wise, this made sense. All the heroes of old were either too old or too dead to fight anymore, and the people who would go on to fight in the Trojan War were just now hitting their awkward teen years. Yep, these were the lean years, Greek hero-wise. Except for, you know, every year after the Trojan War for the rest of time. King Adrastus did a quick count and nodded. Hey, on the plus side, with Polynices, they had enough men so that each could lead the force against one of the seven gates of the city of Thebes. King Adrastus held up a finger and turned to the Greek hero who was trying to get his attention. Yeah, what? The hero, by the name of Capanius, was showing off his artwork on a shield. It was a man without armor, holding a torch, and it read, I will burn the city. King Adrastus stroked his chin. Yeah, yeah. Well, he liked the artwork and the clear themes, but remember, they weren't burning the city to the ground, just taking it back for the rightful king. Also, you're wearing armor in this fight, right? Caponius shook his head. Ugh. All right, well, they'd circle back and talk about that later because that was a really horrible idea. One by one, the others began presenting their shields for feedback. Eteoclus, because names are fun, from Crete, painted a guy climbing a ladder and captioned, not even Ares can cast me down. Our teacher Adrastus liked his confidence, but suggested that they workshop the text a bit. It was borderline dangerously arrogant. All right, King Adrastus rung the bell and told the heroes to clean up the paint. 
He'd look at the rest of the shields tomorrow. It was now time for them to meet their armies. The seven armies assembled on the plains outside Argos. While King Adrastus surveyed, smiled, and nodded. The heroes might have been a disappointment, but the army was not. With their seven armies together, it was the biggest ground force to ever assemble in the Mediterranean, at least for a few years into the Trojan War. Yeah, I guess, Polynices said. I don't know. Sometimes I get the feeling that this is a horrible idea and we're all gonna die. Yeah, I get that feeling too, man, Tiresias said, patting Polynices on the back and walking away. Polynices looked up in surprise. Wait, what do you mean by that? But Tiresias was already gone. And for someone who could see the future, Tiresias was both helpful and frustratingly laconic in his speech. So he was like pretty much every seer and prophet ever. For example, the only battle advice he gave was, yes, attack. It was the will of the gods to attack. And Polynices would kill his brother in battle. Of course, Polynices was more reserved in his enthusiasm than King Adrastus, who'd stood, brushed his hands together, announced that this was all they needed to hear, and dismissed the prophet. However, Tiresias hung around, and soon they were all boarding the ships to sail north to Thebes. That morning, after years in exile, Polynices kissed his wife and his young son. When it was safe, he told them, he would send for them in Thebes. So his son, the heir to his throne, could grow up in the city that he would later rule. With that, he and the six other heroes, together with their armies filling the Aegean, sailed north for Thebes. We'll see Polynices and his band bumble their way into war, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. this battle ends up going exactly as well as my clumsy foreshadowing would lead you to believe. It comes from the play Seven Against Thebes. And in the play, the seven heroes that besiege the city of Thebes are met by seven Theban heroes, who are even less well-known. In the parts where it goes well for the Argives, the armies from Argos, led by Polynices, the battles come to be a draw, because, of course, the Olympians had their favorites. They always do. Athena watched in horror as her favorite, an attacker by the name of Tydeus killed his Theban counterpart, but took a sword slash across the stomach and dropped to the ground among the chaos. Tydeus was the father of Diomedes, the guy who was sailing around with Odysseus a few weeks back in the Achilles episode. Floating over to Tydeus, Athena decided to make him immortal and bring him to live forever among the gods until she found him. He, apparently, was so dedicated to thoroughly defeating and shaming the Theban army that he had gone for a little extra credit. Laying next to the corpse, the injured Tydeus had managed to chop off the enemy's head, cracked it open like a coconut, and was presently slurping up his brains. At the surprising sight of Athena, Tydeus rushed to wipe his mouth, begging Athena to wait, but she was gone. Zeus, on the other hand, didn't exactly have a favorite, but there was someone he was keeping his eye on. Capanius. This was the guy who had drawn a naked man on a shield. You know, the one storming the city just the day before. And he was apparently dedicated to life-imitating art. A torch in one hand, a shield in the other, and absolutely nothing else covering his body, 
Caponius sprinted for the walls of Thebes. Now, if you're thinking Caponius's Theban counterpart got a freebie on this one, you have no idea. Because when Caponius mounted the ladder to the city backwards, he shouted that not even Zeus himself could keep him from invading Thebes. Up on Olympus, Zeus pinched the bridge of his nose. There it was. On a completely clear day, a single lightning bolt cracked down from the sky and struck Caponius. Instantly, the brazen wall of muscle was reduced to ash. Of course, the gods had their eyes on individuals from both sides. And Ares? He was watching King Ateoclus. You remember the attacker, not the twin king, who had arrogantly written, not even Ares can cast me down on a shield. Look, if you live in a world where the Greek gods are real, and you write, the immortal guy who's known for how much he loves killing can't kill me on your shield, during a battle, you're pretty much punching your own ticket to Hades. Good game. As the battle raged, Ateocles stood atop the wall, urging his men to fight and defend, while Polynices stood on the corpse-strewn battlefield, urging his own army to storm the city and reclaim his birthright. It was epic. The entire battle was coming to a head, but neither army listened. It had been a bad day. Both armies had been crushed. The city that they both cared so much about was now burning, and a dying guy over there was eating a dead guy. It was messed up stuff. The guys in the army of one Theban prince yelled out to the guys in the army of the other. Did they want to let this be decided by single combat? The guys in the ground nodded and took a seat right there in the battlefield. Yeah, let's let the only two guys who will actually benefit from this whole thing fight their own battle. Man, they should have started with this, one soldier said. All those around him nodded. Polynices, with the confidence given to him by Tiresias, agreed. And already, Eteocles was descending from the wall. The pair met on the plains, surrounded by the corpses fallen in battle, for or against their respective claim. Polynices shouted first. This was Eteocles' doing. He had refused to share the throne, and he was responsible for this war. Eteocles laughed. Polynices had shown his true colors. He had not only left, but returned with an army of foreigners who set fire to the city. He was now the son of a foreign king. He betrayed his own people and his own blood, and now, God's willing, Eteocles would bring him to justice. At the mention of the gods, Polynices smiled. The gods had told him he would win, and he readied his spear as Eteocles rushed him. In his confidence, Polynices wasn't prepared for the flurry of blows that followed. Polynices had forgotten how the twins had trained with the same man in Thebes, that his twin was stronger. The blows came fast and hard as Polynices blocked them as best he could. Then, he took a fateful step. It was a stone or corpse or something. Polynices didn't have time to find out, but what he did know was that he was out of control, dropping back, falling. He had tripped. In the end, it was actually luck. Eteocles saw his brother lose his footing, watched his supine fall begin in the flash of an eye, and the ruling brother rushed forward, spear out, ready to finish it and secure his throne once and for all, when Polynices' spear found his chest. Polynices didn't even know it was there. He was on the ground, wincing at what was surely going to be the last thing he ever saw, his brother looming over him with a spear mere inches from his throat. But his twin was frozen in that position. 
Polynices' spear had pierced his heart, and the king had died instantly. It was over. Tiresias was right. He was now the king of Thebes. And I like to think he said some witty quip, like, no more Mr. Polynices guy. But probably not. Polynices shifted to get out from under the body, and he must have moved the spear that was jammed against the back of his brother's ribcage, the fraction of an inch it needed, because it was able to push through Ateocles' back. A gasp went up from the surrounding soldiers. Polynices was about to ask what was wrong when he felt it. His brother's spear tip plunged into his throat, the weapon frozen in the grip of the dead twin and weighted down by his body. Polynices clawed at the ground around him, trying to speak through the rushing blood for help. But there was nothing anyone could do. In seconds, he was unconscious. And in minutes, he joined his brother. Antigone watched the guards. Her sister trembled at her side as she put a hand on the girl's shoulder and looked into her eyes. It had to be done. Antigone had been back in Thebes for one day. The day the Civil War ended with both the sons of Oedipus, her brothers, dead. The day the curse on her family struck again. She had made the long voyage from Athens and had seen the crows and smoke on the horizon. The gates were open and she walked right in. Past the piles of bodies that Thebans were preparing for burial, past the guards that stood next to Polynices and Ateocles, who were left right where they had fallen. In Greek myth, the prevailing advice is that if there's glory, you go for it, even if it means an early death. Our bodies will eventually die anyway, all of them, with no exceptions. But glory, that lasted forever. There was, however, also something to be said about keeping your head down and popping back up once all the hotheads are gone. Creon was the brother of Jocasta, the former queen, and brother-in-law slash uncle to Oedipus. As we've talked about long ago, Creon was left in charge after Oedipus left, but he quickly gave the throne to the sons of Oedipus when he learned that they'd worked out a deal. We just saw how that deal went down. So, when the fog of war cleared, the nobles of the city convened and decided that Creon should be their king not because he had the best story or some nonsense, but because he was the last surviving male in the line of Cadmus, their mythical ancestor. And they just wanted things to get back to normal. And so, Creon was now the unquestioned king of Thebes. He swallowed hard. He had loved his nephews. But, and he would never say this, the war had ended just about as well as it could have for him. It would be the start of a new dynasty, helmed by Haman, his only son. And that was the day Antigone returned. She wasn't looking for power. She had seen what happened to her father and brothers when they reached for that. Instead, she just wanted to come home. She wanted rest. Surveying the situation, Creon, a man who had successfully used his own lack of initiative to fall backwards into power, had an idea. There was no precedent for Antigone to become the queen of Thebes. Thebes had never possessed a solitary female ruler before, but maybe there was a way for her to become queen. In time, Creon stepped aside to reveal his son, her cousin, the now prince, Haman. 
Antigone and Haven had grown up together. And it was true that she found him attractive and he found her attractive. Both were amenable to the match, but even beyond the match, it meant that Antigone wouldn't have to sail to some strange land to be married off to whichever old king wanted her after the curse on her family. She could stay in Thebes and live at home with a smile and a few tears. She nodded. Yes, that sounded wonderful. Haman and Antigone embraced and kissed. This was a happy end to a tragic tale. Creon could point to Antigone if anyone challenged his dynasty's place on the throne. He was merely a steward for the rightful king's blood to regain the throne in time. Antigone understood this trade-off, and she was fine with it. She could dwell in the land she called home, where she wanted to be and belonged, in peace. And that was when Creon gave a speech. She stood behind him as he announced that he was the king of Thebes and that this was a chance to heal. He didn't trash the memory of Oedipus, but he made it clear that this was a break from the past. The civil war was over and they would all move on. Antigone smiled, nodded, and clapped. Then, Creon continued. The war had been hard and many within the city had lost loved ones. Creon could read the look on their faces. He knew what they wanted. They wanted someone to blame. So he gave them that. He said that Ateocles, their king and his predecessor, would be buried with all honors. He would have a tomb worthy of his blood. The people cheered, and Antigone clapped again. Polynices? Polynices had led a foreign army against his own city. Against his own blood. Cheering turned to booing and Creon nodded. He knew, he knew, yeah. So Polynices would not be given a burial. He would not be given passage to the underworld. He would be left to rot in the field outside of town, a feast for carrion birds, as a warning to anyone who ever thought about betraying Thebes. As king, his word was law, and anyone who went against it would be stoned to death. Creon smiled as the city erupted in cheers once again. Creon's wife looked at her son, and her daughter-in-law-to-be. Haman swallowed hard and looked at Antigone. Antigone stood there, staring forward, her eyes fixed on the back of Creon's head, jaw clenched. It was that night that Antigone found her sister, Ismene, and slipped past the guards. The pair crept toward the body of her brother, Creon's wife had begged the king to take it back, to bury both brothers. Haman had also pleaded for him to do the same. Antigone, though, remained silent. She knew what happened. Creon had been swept up in the moment and said something he now regretted. But, like all weak men, he couldn't bear to be seen as such. And backtracking and changing his mind was out of the question. It didn't matter, though. He may make the law, but he didn't decide right and wrong. She would defy the order and honor her family, burying Polynices and doing the right thing, no matter the cost. And so begins the play Antigone, the work of Sophocles where Antigone, the individual driven by her principles, rages against a budding authoritarian state. We'll wrap up the saga of the family of Oedipus next week. I want to say thanks to Ali Humamama, Wukazuki, Hudge, E Badger, Abigail M08, 
IKC-22, Nordic Tile Setter, Billium-728, Swimfast-14, Bin-60, Roxio-304, and Son of Apathy for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for the review. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of elf earbuds, headphone earbuds that look like elf ears, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and every versions of the show that don't look like you're just taking off to the gray havens to let Middle Earth deal with its own problems. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Muldijawank from Australian Aboriginal folklore. The Muldijawank is maybe a river-dwelling merman who, like most mermen, is fairly buff. Maybe. It might also be a gargantuan monster that lives in the rivers. Or it might be something small enough to hide under seaweed and only want to eat children who get too close to the waterway. The big one, though, is not a huge fan of colonization. Case in point, when European settlers were driving a steamboat down the Murray River, two massive hands surged up from the waters and gripped the sides of the watercraft, bending and denting the metal. The captain ran for his rifle and aimed it at the hands, but the aboriginal elders aboard the boat threw themselves between the firearm and the merman hands, saying that the captain should not do this. If he did, he will be punished. Unconvinced, the captain ordered his men to pull the elders aside, and when they were clear, he fired. Well, he drove off the merman, but the elders shook their heads. He laughed at their foolish, primitive superstition, and also, hey, why was he crying blood? I'm actually not sure what one's supposed to do in the event that giant hands come from the water, belonging to a monster that threatens to crush your boat against its head like a can headed to recycling, but the captain chose poorly. It took the captain six months to die, and at the end, he was covered in boils and nearly unrecognizable. There's not a lot we know about this creature, like, for instance, how many of them there are. It's unclear whether there are multiple Muldijewonks or just the Muldijewonk. But really, when it comes to creatures that can give you boils so badly with their mind that you suffer for six months and your family doesn't even recognize you at the end, well, one is probably enough. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Myths and Legends listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code LEGENDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com legends and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. All right, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.